You're listening to The Exiled Theologian, a podcast that explores where faith, mystery, and the Bible intersect in Jesus. Sometimes, orthodox questions require unorthodox answers. My name is Josh Franklin. All right, folks, I'm back. It's been a little while. Sorry about that. I was stricken with COVID back in July, and uh, it was a pretty rough bout of it, but I'm better. It took me took me a little while to get over it and recover, uh, and slowly, mind, body, and soul are coming back together, but I'm back, and uh, I, w- I thought I would inaugurate my return with an examination of the parable of the talents. So that's what we're going to go through today, which will require some gray thinking, and it should be pretty fun and interesting and leave you with more questions and answers. And that's my goal. (laughs) So let's get started. Jesus told several parables, which are recorded in the Bible. And I love the parables because they're often mysterious and nuanced and uh, complex and loaded with hidden meanings. Parables are essentially just simple stories used to illustrate moral or spiritual lessons. And Jesus wasn't the only spiritual leader to leverage this as a teaching tool. You know, it was it was pretty common, um, commonly used, a common method of wisdom instruction in the ancient world. So whether you follow Jesus or are merely curious about him, it's it's really important to first build the context of the entirety of his message when when you're trying to interpret the lessons hidden in any of his given parables. And as followers of Jesus, we, we do believe the divine has or or is, is working on giving us new eyes, so to speak. So um, giving us new eyes to see the world differently. We, we do believe we have a freedom to be untethered from, you know, the errors of our past and that we have a new way to exist in the world that's personally governed by God's reality or what we would call the kingdom of God, which is a phrase used often in churches and in religious language. This new reality is contrary to the world's system of priorities. So it's it's God's system. That's what we mean when we we say the kingdom of God. And God's system is upside down. And Jesus, you know, he he made this clear. You know, when he says things like the last shall be first and the first shall be last, he's flipping the whole thing upside down. God's system doesn't value return driven ambition. It's not something we find in Jesus's teachings. God's system isn't concerned with like earthly power. So we're not urged to obtain it and, and we don't fear it either, or at least we try not to, because we believe we already have it in a spiritual way. In God's system, people aren't measured by accomplishments or activism or politics or uh, or especially achievements. In God's system, grace and forgiveness and even position is given. It's it's not earned. You know, it's not a merit-based system. So we need to have all of this in mind when we're approaching the parables. So knowing this, can there be more to the ideas of of grace and forgiveness? You know, do these ideas or what Christians consider as new realities say something about our inherent corruption or our inherent worth? I like thinking about these questions. And I think anytime you examine a parable of Jesus, these are questions that should also be you know, in, in in the front of mind, you know, when you're looking at them. So in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells a fascinatingly confusing and famous parable called the Parable of the Talents. 
There are some standard ways this has been interpreted, but I'm always convinced that the parables are a plentiful source of hidden meanings, and and there's no end to the wisdom that that they hide, actually. So, uh, so you will need to gray out your mind here. You know, we're going to take a ride, and we're going to explore the edges of what can be true and and new to us as we we approach this parable. And please keep in mind, I'm not saying that this parable has to be interpreted this way. Parables are like diamonds. There's all kinds of edges to them. There's sides to them. There's different layers. There's they're just they're dynamic. So this is one edge that I think could could be true. It's a lesson that I've I'm pulling out of the parable personally, frankly. So please don't interpret it that way. I just um I'm looking at it and this is this is one other this is one other um, idea or lesson that I was able to extrapolate, at least for me. So let's take a look at the parable. And when and when we do, so we're going to read it. I'll read it for you. Um, it's in Matthew chapter 25. It's verses 14 through 30. But when you read a parable, you have to, you really have to listen as carefully as you can. And you, you should notate all the different characters and all of their, all of their different actions as well, because it'll help, help you begin to like map it out, piece it together and maybe uncover what's what Jesus is, is hiding in there. So the parable goes like this. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Or I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you know that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he who will, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not... Even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the dark, outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ouch. Yeah, ends a little rough. So at this point, you might want to pause the episode here and just kind of slowly read back through the parable because I'm just kind of flying through it. Um, I mean, you really do have to kind of stop, spend some time on it. But uh, that last bit is what throws a lot of people off too, where they're like, oh, this is about like not doing the thing you're supposed to do and getting thrown in hell and stuff like that. And so it gets made about hell. And I'm not going to say it's not this or that, but I tend to move away from that one. <laughs> it's not really my my favorite 
interpretation of it. <clears throat> and I think there's something a bit more psychological and deeper and kind of like, whoa, a little bit mind blowing in this parable. But let's let's look at it. And so as you go back, ask this question. Did you notice what the master gave to the servants? Did you take a look at that? You know, he gave them each varying numbers of talents, right? And talents, you know, were a sum of money. There's something of value. But but in the way it's described in the story, the use of the word actually means to bear up or, or uphold. If you look at verse 14 again, which is the beginning, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. He entrusted to them his property. So they, they were all indeed given something of value, something other than the talents. When Jesus says property, he's saying that the man entrusted or permitted the servants to lead, rule, and be chief with what he had given them. So, so in a way, to me, it feels like he gave them each opportunity. He gave them you know, what we would call favor because he gave things that he owned over to them to manage them to do what they, they will with them. So maybe the parable isn't merely about producing a return, so to speak. Maybe it's maybe it's not even you know solely about the talents. I, I think that's where some interpretations get off track a little bit because it's all about like, well, you've been given something by God and now you need to produce a return. You know, it's it feels like a very works based parable in the beginning. And I would say I would argue that a lot of Jesus's parables seem like something else in the beginning. It's like. I mean, it's not a trick, but it makes it interesting. It, it makes it so that you have to actually like, wait a second, could it really be about this? So that you dig in and you engage and you keep going um, as far as you go into the parable. So let's let's keep going. Let's not assume it's about one thing, which would be like return-driven results. In a way, I, f- I feel like we've all been given life, you know, like that opportunity that they all, they were all given – it, it could be life. It could mean that we've all been given life and breath and consciousness with, with very little stru- instruction on what to do with it, which if you remember, it, they're, they're all not really given instructions on what to do. Very much feels like life to me. And God's entrusted us with life. And I think there's an inherent baseline of favor, of favor in that reality. And we've been given the freedom to steward and manage this sacred and holy experiment. So because he doesn't he doesn't give them instructions it's it seems like he just gives them permission to manage what what he had given them his property and we have similarly been afforded permission to walk freely in life in our life in this life to give to grow to love and to breathe in air with no memories of past errors or fabricated ex- expectations and, and I don't remember I don't recall or I don't notice that the the master even places any expectations on them other than he's entrusted them to manage the property. Something I've noticed is that it's very difficult to grow in something you don't believe you have. And belief in life can be a powerfully destructive force or it can be amazingly empowering, like it can be a catalyst. And perhaps there's a fold in this parable that compels us to believe that we've been given something more than just something to manage. I noticed that something inhabited the belief of the third servant, infecting him like a virus, attacking his identity and determining you know, what he was going to do. It was like shaping and crafting and directing his actions. And that, that thing, I think, 
that was inhabiting his belief was fear. He was fearful. He was absolutely gripped by fear. If you, you know, once you get to the end of the story, you see like he was terrified of the master. He feared the master. He believed he was a hard man. So we see fear manifest deeply in the third servant's psyche. We see a fear of man and of, of results that seems to just own him. You know, it, it says he who had received the one talent dug in the ground and hid his master's money. A friend sent me this quote, which reminds me of the third servant and myself for that matter. And it goes like this. The seldom stated truth is that many of us have a longing for God and an aversion to God. Some of us seek him and flee him at the same time. It's like a holy paradox. I, I don't know who wrote that quote either. So I'm sorry about that, but it came from a book. What drives that aversion? You know, for the, for the third servant, I think it was fear. You know, he, he did nothing. He was paralyzed. And I don't want to focus on, well, he didn't do anything. So let's, you know, let's bash him for that. That's not what we're, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm trying to understand why he did nothing. And that's where I think sometimes people can get tripped up in this parable is we focus on his action only instead of asking, why did he do that? So he did nothing. He was paralyzed. And I think those were the case because he believed falsely that he was only given one talent. He also had a, a false perception of the master. Like he, he created his own view of him, which like determined a new reality for him. And I think fear feeds falsity. He allowed that fear to have the last word. And a buddy of mine said this years ago, and I think, I think that this is one of the points underwriting the parable, but fear makes for a poor master. And when I, when I read this parable again, and I thought about this idea that a friend of mine said a few years ago, it kind of made my mind blow up. Like there was a little bit of an explosion because I was like, whoa, the master that he created in his own mind was a master to be feared. And it's it's kind of a trippy a trippy nugget in here. It's or at least one of them. The third servant feared the very thing that happened to him and he allowed that fear to determine his actions. Fear actually convinced him to do the thing he thought he should have been doing instead of the thing he was empowered to do. He forgot he was favored. It wasn't the talent that needed to grow. Growing into our God-given favor can be a very gritty and messy process. It's, you know, like art, I guess. It's a process that involves correcting and right-setting our view of God and therefore of ourselves. And, and maybe he, you know, he was so afraid Maybe he had a poor view of himself as well. I don't know. Could be reading in the, I'm probably reading myself in the parable, but I think actually that's sometimes the point. We need to find ourselves in the parables. <laughs> but if we're not careful, we'll live in response to the God that we perceive. And if that God is a hard God, an angry God, a mean God, I don't know how we can not see that infect the way that we live and the way that we behave and the actions that we take. When Luke wrote about Jesus growing in favor with God, the words he used 
conveyed it as a process of one beating forward. It's akin to lengthening out steel by beating it with a hammer. Believing ourselves to be originally good and favored is difficult, especially when our view of God is that he's angry and he's hard and he's unforgiving. And look, we get that view. That view is fabricated and crafted for us in so many different ways. A lot of it comes from old baggage and experience, experiences with church, maybe parents, friends, you know, kind of that Job experience where people are just kind of putting this false God on you. And I think, you know, maybe in this parable, there should be a little bit of freedom for you that you don't have to you don't have to live based on the God that somebody else has put on you. Again, the God we want to find is the God in Jesus. So fear can keep us from believing that God is good and that we are good because he made us good. Blaise Pascal, he, which he was like a philosopher, I think he was a mathematician, and he was an atheist at one point. He said this, men are both unworthy and capable of God, unworthy by their correction or corruption, sorry, capable by their original value. Maybe another lesson we can extract from this parable is is to not bury what God has assigned us, which is that original value or goodness, which and I know for some reason that's controversial. Boy, sometimes I get into some chats about this and it's tough for some people to accept this, but I believe it's reality. I believe it's right there in Genesis actually. But if we can see this original value in ourselves, you know, we can then look for it in others and we can pursue ways to leverage it for the common good. When we do, he says, enter into the joy of your master. So after pulling this parable apart many times, I'm, I'm now convinced that in God's system, he isn't, well, listen, I don't think he's primarily concerned with how we manage what we have. You know, like things. Perhaps his chief concern regards how we steward who we are. That is actually what will determine how we manage what we have. All right, folks, grace and peace to you. May the Holy Spirit be with you. And remember to always think gray. Thanks for listening to the Exile Podcast. Thanks for listening, folks. If you want to reach me with comments or questions, you can find me on Instagram at Joshy Franklin or uh, go ahead and send me an email at josh.franklin44 at gmail.com. Thanks again.